Welcome to the Cephi Podcast. In this episode in our season celebrating 50 years of the Society, we talk to Bill Williams, who's witnessed and helped to develop the engineering education research landscape over several decades. Welcome to the European Engineering Educators Podcast by Cephi, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. What is engineering education research? Is it a distinct and credible field? And does it have a strong enough theoretical foundations? And why don't all engineering faculty support it? I'm Neil Cook. And I'm Natalie Wendt. So Neil, quite um, early on in my academic career, I switched from sort of enhanced research pathway to an enhanced teaching um, academic pathway. Mm. And I guess that was mainly because I was becoming a bit more interested in researching about education systems and people within those systems. And almost immediately was quite frustrated um, Mm. when faced with some sort of lack of support, recognition Mm. um, for education research, both in my own context, but I guess more widely as well. And it had very much taken for granted when I was doing technical research. What about you? Um, So sort of engineering education research is something that I've only got into recently and I've not really published beyond conferences but I've written papers as first author in in many areas in it so I'm looking forward to hearing Bill's insight today on this emerging field. Hi Bill thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah it's my pleasure uh, Nat and Neil and uh, I've enjoyed listening to uh, some of the other podcast in this series so this is the first podcast I, I, I've ever done I think I've done quite a few webinars but this is the first yeah. podcast so yep I'm looking forward to our conversation. So Bill Williams originally trained as a chemist at the National University of Ireland and has since worked in education in a variety of European and African countries. He serves as an associate editor of the European Journal of Engineering Education published by CEFI and the Journal of Engineering Education. So, Bill, what was it that triggered your sort of switch from chemistry to get more involved in engineering education research? I guess my my journey was quite a long one. I I, I published research in chemistry uh, in 1973, mm. and then I had quite. Um, convoluted career in various countries, as you said, including uh, three African countries and mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, I, at one stage in my career, I made a career change from chemistry to languages, mm-hmm. and specifically English language. Being in the language teaching area, especially in the private sector, which is very competitive, I, I, I learned a lot about what you can do in the classroom and, uh, you know, things like uh, task-based learning, problem-based learning have been going on in language classrooms for quite a long time. And then when I, about 20 years ago, when I moved back into uh, higher education and started working in, in an engineering school, I realized that some of the things I'd learned from the language teaching classroom could be very useful uh, in the engineering laboratory and the engineering lecture lecture hall. Mm-hmm. That was, I guess, how I, I got involved. And uh, But the most important uh, trigger, I guess, or, or, or kind of motivation was uh, uh, thinking, you know, how can we do something better for our students? Mm-hmm. And I saw it working and I thought, well, yeah, now that's interesting, you know, and the students kind of gave positive feedback and so on. Okay, so Bill, um, you've been involved in many organisations related to engineering education and its research. Um, Portugal, TU Dublin, UCL, and uh, various um, international societies um, attached to to the to the field. I'm interested to know um, how does some of that local experience that you've had extend to the more broader context? Sort of following on from what I was saying earlier, you know, that in our classrooms and uh, with other colleagues in other engineering schools, we saw yeah. things that were working. I wanted to uh, share them and find out what others were doing. I, I went to 
a symposium in 2008 uh, in, in Davos. Right. And that was when I discovered it was like, you know, in a computer game where you get up to another level and you find, oh, wow, <laughs> there's this whole other level I didn't even realize existed. Right. Uh, and yeah. it has its own language and it has its own, you know, <laughs> concepts and, and important people and all of this that I had no notion about. And uh, so that that was a bit of a, well, it was exciting in one way, but it was a bit of a shock all, uh, also. It was actually uh, the first Rees Symposium. It took place in 2008. Yeah, so so this was the Research in Engineering Education Symposium in, yeah. in Davos, Switzerland. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, how that came about was that in the the years leading up to that, there was uh, a growing awareness uh, in both CEFI and in ASEE in the mm. states of a, a need to have if you like, a more more rigorous, uh, a more formal approach to research and engineering education on the one hand, and a more global view on the other. Yeah. So uh, a group of people in the US got funding uh, or support, I think funding from the, from the National Science Foundation and support from ASEE to uh, organize a symposium in 2007. It was called ICRI. And it was, uh, they invited sort of leading people that they saw as leading researchers from the US and also invited people from other parts of the world to submit. So that took place in, uh, in Hawaii in, in 2007. Okay. Right. So you had uh, a group of people from the US and from outside the US all coming together in Hawaii to talk about, to share their work and talk about the future of global engineering education research. It transpired that that when they all came together, that there was some divisions between the people in the US and the people from Europe. Yeah. And this is reported, it was published in in a paper by Borrego and colleagues at the time. And the main difference seemed to be uh, on what what can be seen as engineering education research? What can be seen as, you know, as, mm. as acceptable research in, in the field? And the feeling that at the time was, uh, or at least the people from Europe felt that because there was more qualitative research being done in Europe and the, the, the focus in the US was on quantitative research, mm. that uh, various papers submitted uh, because the papers had to be submitted in advance for the symposium, uh, yeah. uh, a number of papers were rejected. Right. And so there was a bit of, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, Europe's not happy. Yeah, uncomfortableness <laughs> uh, uh, at this. But I think, uh, uh, so that was a sort of a, a bit of a, a division that mm. existed back then. Mm. Uh Thankfully, I believe that that uh, that sort of division it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, so this happened in two thousand and seven. Then it was decided, okay, the next one, let's have it in Europe so that we can get more European people involved. Yeah. And it was set for Davos. And so when I arrived there, though, I discovered that in fact there were very few people from Europe at it. There was only, I think, two of us were actually presenting. But there was uh, a lot of people from from the US, mainly from somewhere called Purdue, which I'd never heard of, and <laughs> Virginia Tech, and they were talking about you know qualitative research and and coding and you know a whole lot of stuff, <laughs> you know that was completely new to me, and that, that was when I realised that that about there's this other level that I I had uh, I was completely unaware of. But it was something to aspire to, something that seemed to uh, have the potential to be rigorous in the same way as research in chemistry, which I was familiar with, you know, was expected to be rigorous. So that was kind of an eye opener for me, really, that event in, 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 in Davos in 2008. And that was the first of the Rees Symposia, which have been, uh, which have been going on since then. 
So, Bill, you spoke about these events um, that started in 2007 with both Americans um, and Europeans and how they sort of, the idea of them really was to try and make engineering education research a bit more credible, maybe speak about it in terms of, of quality measures and things like that, but also to make the research a bit more globalized and, and share sort of practice um, internationally. So I'm just wondering why is it that at that time uh, people decided that they wanted to take engineering education research a bit more seriously and these events were set up? Yeah, well, I think the practitioners themselves took it seriously. Mm -hmm. It was more a question of uh, of carving out territory, if you like, of uh, of achieving legitimacy. Sure. And we looked back at the publications in the European Journal mm -hmm. and in in the American Journal, JEE. Mm -hmm. And we went back to the 70s in, in, for both of these journals. When, when we looked at the two journals and we looked at, we took uh, a sample, samples from, from each journal uh, every 10 years and we analyzed them by, uh, we used various criteria to decide, uh, would we consider this particular paper a research paper or not? And in 1973, uh, in both journals, we didn't find anything that looked like research, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, by 1983, you had, had about 10% of the papers in, in, in JE and maybe 5% in EJE. Uh, we, we would qualify as research. And then it w went up. So by the, t by the 2013, 100% of the papers in both journals, according to our criteria, would, would qualify as research. So we see there in the journals of the societies on both sides of the Atlantic, a, a, a progression, if you like, a, a, an evolution. Sure. So um, obviously you mentioned then about, you know, the increasing quality of, of submissions. I mean, I'm interested in how the sort of criteria you used for that, but also then whether that increasing quality was then seen as an improvement in in engineering education itself as it was intended, presumably. Okay, we got them uh, from uh, the guiding principles uh, from a paper by Shavelson and Town in 2002. And there were six guiding principles. Number one, pose significant questions that can be investigated empirically. Number two, mm -hmm. link research to relevant theory. Three, use methods that permit direct investigation of the question. Uh, four, provide a coherent and explicit chain of reasoning. Five, replicate and generalize across studies. And finally, disclose research to encourage professional scrutiny and critique. Right, so ideally, you'd look for all of those. But in, in our one, uh, we considered research articles to be those which fulfilled three or more of those criteria. So that's how we did it. And you can see it's, you know, it's, it's subjective in some ways, yeah, but, yeah, but it gives an overall picture, which, which we felt was important. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that was our criteria. And uh, your second question, Nat, was the, uh, the, the really tough one. Uh, <laughs> how, how has that actually uh, in, in influenced uh, practice in, in engineering education? And there was, there's a very sobering paper came out about four or five years ago by, uh, Maura Borrego, Jeff Freud, and, and, uh, some, some other people, uh, in the US, mm -hmm. uh, where they surveyed and interviewed people in a variety of engineering schools to see to what extent, uh, the most recent ideas or, or, or insights, if you like, from research were actually changing practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I don't have the, the, the precise figure in my head, but it was kind of discouraging, actually. So mm -hmm. the question of dissemination, you know, uh, and well, dissemination and actually changing practice is, uh, is much tougher, yeah. if you like, yeah, yeah. for sure. However, not, not, you know, not to be too discouraging. Uh, what I think we can see if we look around is that 
there there are more and more in Europe people doing uh, doctoral research mm-hmm. in the area of engineering mm-hmm. education. And so what that means is that, number one, we're getting uh, empirical data coming into the engineering education community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting, you know, research. And secondly, uh, although not all of those doctoral uh, uh, candidates, perhaps not all of them by any means, will actually uh, go into uh, become engineering faculty, I think we, we can anticipate that there will be more awareness in engineering schools uh, of you know the the latest ideas in terms mm-hmm. of active learning in terms of say uh, diversity and inclusion ethics uh, empathy engineering practice all of those things mm-hmm. uh, because I, there is a more uh, uh, generalized awareness i think within the engineering education community and you can see that in in CETI, particularly at the annual conferences so, Bill, you've painted a picture of a, a field that's matured over the last 30 to 40 years. I'm interested uh, to know pathways into engineering education research. How could people get involved? Because it seems to me that there are still barriers for people to um, to do engineering education research at faculty level and, and maybe possibly even personal level as well in terms of skill levels. So, so where would people start? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, good question, Neil. Yeah, uh, yeah th- this is something you know. I said earlier that my own my own pathway was quite a well, some might think peculiar one. You know, <laughs> yeah. where I worked in lots of different places. So uh, I've always been curious about people's pathways, and th- there was one paper I did where uh, I was working with a coll- colleague in Malaysia, and mm-hmm. we. Uh, we postulated uh, various pathways. At the time, we were thinking more, uh, our metaphor, if you like, was like we saw engineering education research as a sort of a clearing in the forest, <laughs> right. thinking of different pathways by by which you could arrive there, okay, right? Yeah. But before I get to the landscape, going back to the the, the, what you said, Neil, about the challenges, both yeah. in institutional, structural challenges mm. and uh, uh, personal, personal challenges. Yeah. yeah. Because, because of my curiosity, I, I was very aware of, um, I mean, in my own institution, they thought, well, you know, Bill is doing some stuff <laughs> that seems strange, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, but the, you know, they, it was sort of seen as a bit of an eccentricity, yeah. I think. Uh, but, you know, people are, okay, fair enough, all well and good, you know, if you want to do that, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and that was often the case, really. And uh, so I thought, as I see it, uh, engineering education research, you know, it seems a bit of a non-starter for people who work in engineering education Wow. Uh, uh, so why would people do it if mm. it's neither profitable or popular? You know, in the words of of, uh, of uh, Miles McGopal, in the Irish Irish author. Uh, <laughs> so I I started interviewing people okay. that that I could see were doing this stuff. Mm. So I interviewed people uh, in Malaysia, Australia, US, uh, from Ireland, England, Finland, Portugal, mm. and. Uh, well, what I learned was that, number one, the main, the original motivation for people developing a passion for this area was to do with their students. Right. Almost yeah. all of the, the 13 people uh, from all these different parts of the world, I think 12 out of the 13 said, oh, uh, it, was, it, uh, it was my students. Okay. And the other thing that was uh, common right across the board was uh, the question of legitimacy. Mm. That, you know, in, in where they were researching this field at that time. This was like 2010, 2011. Mm. Uh, it generally wasn't seen, you know, as something that was very serious or, or, or valid or, or rigorous or whatever. So, yeah. uh, now the personal part, uh, when I started doing research in this area, I realized that I needed to know about social science mm. types of research. Yeah. And, and what is, you know, good quality research in, in that area. 
if you've identified, uh, you know, for 10 or 15 years, if you've identified as like a scientist or an engineer, then finding yourself uh, needing to do social science research or work with social scientists uh, to get data, you know, that's, yeah, that's uh, can be challenging to say the least. I mean, I think, I think you're right, Bill. And I think, I think I can relate to this idea that you know, there's a social science discipline that um, many people um, find difficult to bridge, um, particularly if they're doing a PhD in, in an area which isn't uh, social sciences and, and, and do more empirical research. Um, can I just come on back to this idea of uh, the landscape then? Could you describe a bit more about, about this landscape and how it's changed yeah. over time? Yeah. Uh, there was a really nice paper by Keith Willey and Anne Gardner in Australia. Yeah. Uh, where they were trying to see how best to, to overcome those kind of challenges that we've been talking about to do mm. with legitimacy, to do with feeling comfortable mm. uh, and so on. And they came up with a sort of a matrix, which uh, represents the engineering education research landscape. So in this landscape, you have in the center, you have the research domain of engineering education research. Okay. And then around it, you have four other, uh, you know, we could see them as sort of uh, uh, hills, if you like, or bits of territory. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the, these four surrounding territories uh, are, one of them is engineering practice, mm -hmm. which obviously uh, must feed into engineering education research. Yeah. Second uh, bit of territory is the scholarship of teaching and learning. Uh, the third one is uh, the whole area of social research, education theory, learning and research methods, cognitive load theory, situated learning, PBL, all of that. And the, the final one is engineering education itself. Right, okay. And these territories uh, are linked, obviously, so to the, the engineering education research domain in the centre. Mm. And what they... What uh, Gardner and Willie asked people to do then at the uh, annual conference in Australia, they said, right, look at this territory here and where do you see yourself uh, on these four axes? Okay, yeah. Uh, maybe about uh, 15 or 20 people to identify where each of them uh, found or found themselves on this landscape. Okay, yeah. So uh, that seems to me now a more useful way of looking at it uh, rather than thinking of kind of abstract pathways, but to see mm. it as a landscape where this year I see myself on this part of the, of the landscape, but maybe in five years' time I'll be in a different place because maybe I've, gra I've gravitated in towards the centre and I see myself now as an engineering education researcher rather than an engineering practitioner. You know, but having the idea of a landscape, I think, is 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 a useful visual way and of of understanding it and helping people also to see. You know, you don't have to know everything about social science or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's it's you know there's a place for 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 all of us. So presumably yeah. what people can do then is, is, is think of themselves that they can look at each of these four areas and then perhaps say, well, if I want to do a particular piece of engineering education research, I might want to collaborate with somebody in that part of the landscape. Yeah. Um, if, if not upskill themselves to, to understand more, more about that area. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Oh, okay. That, yeah. And in fact, I, I that, personally, I've done that in, in some areas, you know, where the, there wasn't a social scientist nearby, but I had to learn about, you know, qualitative research and stuff like that. So, yeah, I did, like you suggested, Neil, yeah. So, Bill, we started off this uh, conversation sort of talking about how Europeans and Americans were coming together to try and share share their practice. And, and we've sort of gone through some of the ways in which people are trying to develop in engineering education research. Um, so I'm wondering if that's had some kind of effect in terms of, of publication. So as a sort of global community, are we now able to 
to share our findings more easily across contexts? Yeah, I guess I guess we are. I guess we are. Yeah, uh, but at, at the same time, well, I'm thinking of some research I did with with Philip Wancott uh, about eight eight years ago. Uh, we were interested, and well, the reason we did the research really, I guess, was uh, like most people, you know, uh, we did some stuff in the classroom we thought was good. We wanted to share it. So we did a conference paper uh, and then we had a few conference papers. And we thought, right, yeah, maybe we should really try and get this published in a journal. And we started looking at journals and, uh, you know, you realize that it, it's uh, not that easy to get published in a journal. It's easy <laughs> to get rejected, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Um, we were curious then about who gets published in the different journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we looked at specifically, we thought, right, you know, the two leading journals in the field, uh, the European uh, Journal, which, you know, represents CEFI, uh, uh, the Journal of Engineering Education, which represents ASCE. So we looked at uh, who gets published or what's the nationality uh, or at least the affiliation of the people who get published in these two journals. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we analysed the uh, the nationality of the authors in the European journal, it was fairly global, uh, predominantly Euro- from Europe, maybe mm-hmm. it was around 60%, uh, and then perhaps 20% from the US and 10% from the rest of the world, something like that. But it was fairly global. And then we looked at uh, who gets published in JE or who was getting published in JE at that time. Remember, this is like leading, it was up to 2010, 2013, I think, was the sample we took. Mm-hmm. And, well, it, it was uh, US authors almost exclusively. <laughs> uh, so, you know, well, that, that, that took us back a bit. Mm. Uh, and then we thought, right, we'll, we'll go the next step. Right. Uh, who do these published authors, who do they cite? So we analyzed all the citations in these, uh, in the articles in both journals. And, uh, because, you know, we were thinking, right, not many people, almost no people from Europe get published in JEE, but presumably the people who publish in JEE must at least read the, the papers from the rest of the world, you know, and cite them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did like the, the top 30, the most, you know, uh, uh, like a league table, a ranking of, of the most cited, uh, authors in EJEE and JEE. And, uh, in EJEE, it was pretty much like we'd found for the distribution of authors in different parts of the world. It was global, more European than the rest of the world, but, you know, it, it was global. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in our ranking uh, of who gets cited in JEE at that time, it was uh, uh, the first non-US uh, author was like number 28 or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that, that, was, that was worrying, really. That, uh, you know, that there was a, a, a kind of a silo effect operating there. Uh, so that was the situation from 2010 to 2013. And I think that led to a general perception that, on the, uh, number one, it's not that easy to get published in the leading journals in the field. And number two, if you're from outside the US, uh, people then thought, well, you don't have much chance of getting published in JEE. However, since then, there have been significant changes in the way things are done in JEE and whereas the 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 editorial board of JEE at that time I think had like one person from outside uh, from out, outside the US yeah, if you look at the editorial board now uh, there are people from all around the world mm-hmm. and in fact I was I was invited to uh, to do an editorial uh Presenting our, our, our data in JEE. And, uh, I think partly as a consequence of that, 
then there was a, a policy. I think that also fitted in with the uh, around about 2017 when a uh, new uh, uh, editor-in-chief, Lisa Benson, took over. Part of her remit uh, was to increase the, the uh, diversity and inclusion aspect of JE. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look now at the editorial board, you see people from Finland, Portugal, China, uh, South Africa, Colombia in Latin America, uh, as well as people from the US. And also, if you look at who gets published now, although it's still, you still find US authors predominate, uh, there are still a significant, there are now a significant number of authors from other parts of the world published in JEE over the last three or four years. And likewise in EJEE, uh, which, you know, has always had a strong European focus. But if you look at the editorial board there, you find uh, associate editors from Australia, for example. Uh, so the, the journals, those two journals, have come to have a much more global, I think, uh, outlook and a, a global spread, I think, of, of who gets published in those two journals uh, over the last, I guess, seven or eight years. So I think that's that's an interesting development. Yeah, definitely seems positive um, for us Europeans, especially. Mm-hmm. So, but in the past um, few years, we've been working together. Um, and obviously, first we looked at sort of comparing the UK and Ireland. And then in the past year, trying to compare the sort of situation and the degree to which engineering education research was done in different European um, contexts. What what have you got from from that study? I mean, what are the key takeaways for you? Do you think? Yes, I I, I remember that uh, we started doing this because we realised that th- there was very little empirical data actually about what goes on around Europe. Mm. You know, but it, to get a, a kind of global picture of the landscape. <laughs> uh, of what's actually going on in terms of engineering education research. And, and there is quite a lot. And there are a number of PhD programs, formal PhD programs, mm-hmm. and a lot more informal PhD programs. In other words, countries like Portugal and, well, most European countries, I think, when you look around, uh, have little or no formal PhD programs in this field, but quite a few people actually doing uh, doctoral research in the field. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we felt it was important to get some empirical data about it. So, first of all, the the way we went about it was we got we analysed first of all uh, publications from each country, and uh, somewhat to my surprise, the two countries that uh, by far were publishing in in the journals uh, were in the European context, were Spain, number one, and UK, number two. Mm-hmm. And uh, our understanding of it, when we looked into it, both of those countries, their national context, have a strong publish or perish culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, anyway, that was the original uh, quantitative data that we had. And then we used that to get people talking at uh, at last year's uh, CEFI conference. So we had a workshop and got people from uh, a whole range of uh, different European countries talking about what went on in, in their own particular country. Like, do they have research groups? Are there PhD programs? Are there institutional incentives at university level or, or department level or national incentives? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we then followed up uh, uh, from some of those people to try and build up a picture. So, and I guess the overall picture is that there isn't that much institutional or national funding, mm. but there's a number of uh, groups, loose uh, departmental centers or, or uh, whatever, yeah. uh, individuals in some cases, and some countries, though, I think, uh, now I, I remember you identified that uh, the Netherlands in particular seem to have 
uh, abroad. Now, in the past, I know uh, that the, the Nordic countries, particularly mm-hmm. uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden, and Finland, they had the, the Nordic network. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, what, what did you think? Because you did a lot of the work on this data. Yeah. So uh, what like, stood out? As you said, I think in, in most contexts, sort of, there's, there's definitely activity, but sort of lack of, of any formal groups. You know, most of the, the incentives seem to be like teaching based awards, that, that kind of thing. I think a few things stuck out that happened in multiple countries. One is that sort of engineering education research tended to fall between the cracks of, you know, education or engineering in terms of funding. So this sort of multidisciplinary research wasn't so much funded. And that was especially true of countries where they have sort of research excellence frameworks where they're sort of awarding funding based on the the quality of, of research that universities generate. As you said, the Netherlands definitely stood out because they seem to have, you know, bought sort of four technical university institutions together to do engineering education research. And that seemed to, you know, form some kind of coherent strategy as, uh, as to what they wanted to focus on as a, as a nation, really, and sort of prioritizing and hoping, obviously, to, to explore that data further and, and try and understand some of the other countries within Europe as, as as you said, we only managed to to do seven different countries in that paper. Okay, Bill. So you know you've been on this scene for a while now, and um, you know you've seen seen this landscape evolve. And you know I'm interested to to get your perspectives on you know what are the emerging trends that you see. Um, in terms of future work uh, now. Uh, I've been involved in some uh, research into engineering practice. Mm. So there is now uh, a significant body of empirical work about which shows us what uh, professional engineers actually do. Yeah. And it doesn't match up very well with uh, <laughs> what we actually <laughs> train our students yeah. <laughs> to do. Yeah. Uh, because successful professional engineers, uh, a lot of their time and uh, is is taken up with interactive work with social interaction. Mm. Whereas we tend to, you know, from what we teach in the classroom, from what we uh, assess and evaluate, which of course is, you know, the what really. Uh, shapes uh, what the pr- people's priorities, students' priorities, yeah. isn't it, what you evaluate, yeah. uh, tend to be focused on individual work, right? You're mm. sitting an exam on your own or you're submitting <laughs> your, your, your project, etc. Yeah. And uh, professional engineers, on the other hand, are, 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 can be distinguished from the other engineering-related occupations, uh, like technologists and technicians, uh, because of the responsibility they have for the performance and safety through governance of design. Mm. Now, governance of design involves interacting with people. So the whole area of uh, social interaction, of coordination, of collaboration, mm. which our data shows is essential to be uh, a successful uh, engineer, uh, is essential for uh, value creation in an engineering enterprise or, or, you know, or in a startup or even uh, within the community at large for creating value for the community. Uh, all of these, obviously, the engineer has to have the technical know-how, but they also have to be experts in social ac- interaction to get things done, to listen to people, to convince people, uh, you know, at, at all levels. And most of this interaction uh, tends to be informal. It's not like, you know, down the hierarchy or up mm. the hierarchy. It's actually maybe going down and talking to the, 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 the person on the shop floor or making a report to, you know, the, somebody in, in, in the mayor's office or, or, uh, uh, listening to an irate uh, customer <laughs> who hasn't gotten, you know, received what they expect, whatever. Yeah, yeah. All of this uh, involves social skills, and it's not just 
you know, soft skills, or it's mm. not just communication and doing a good PowerPoint. It's a lot more than that. Mm. Uh, so that whole area of, of value creation, of productivity, of engineering practice, and how that f- uh, needs to feed in to what we do in engineering education. I think that's that's going to be one of the most important areas for for the future, really, of engineering education research. So, Bill, thank you so much um, for this conversation today. Um, normally, before we finish, we ask guests for a sort of piece of advice. So I'm just wondering, for people interested in engineering education research and maybe developing themselves as a researcher, where would they go for sort of support and guidance of, of how best to go about that? What would you recommend? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in my home office looking at my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like we were saying earlier, our preparation as like engineering or, 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 or natural sciences doesn't really prepare us uh, to be engineering education researchers. Mm. And even from the other side of the coin, uh, you know, people who come from psychology or uh, education, etc., but are fascinated by this field, uh, they also suffer different anxieties, but they do also have anxieties. Mm. And where can you turn to? And, you know, there aren't that many uh, doctoral programs. There aren't that many courses, but there are some, well, some works that for me are like canonical for sure. So maybe if I can just mention the, the four or five I, I see uh, on my own bookshelf here that I'd, I'd recommend uh, people who are kind of who want to start out on this on this pathway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I would start with John Haywood's 2005 book because mm-hmm. it's called Engineering Education Research and Development in Curriculum Instruction. And that for me was the, the first kind of major work in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a hefty book. It's a good one to consult. Yeah. But if if you want, you know, uh, something that will uh, give you some uh, a smaller package, if you like, I'd say the um, the issue, the hundredth issue of the Journal of Engineering Education, which came out in two thousand and eleven. For that particular one, rather than uh, include the normal research articles, they commissioned articles from the people that they thought were the top in the field at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think every article uh, in that particular issue uh, of JEE, the 2011 100th issue, Mm -hmm. for example, it has one by by, uh, uh, Case and Light. It has a really good article for people from uh, an engineering or science background who are find themselves confronted with these strange uh, methodological approaches of social science. Mm-hmm. So they go through each one, you know, <laughs> uh, grounded theory, uh, ethnogra- ethnography, mm-hmm. etc. They go through each one of them and say when you might find this useful. Mm. That's good. Yeah. And then they they give you uh, an exemplar of a published article that uses this particular technique of this, uh, you know, approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's written for engineers who want to know about social science methodologies. And I think it's classic, really, for me. Uh, moving on then. So, uh, so far, I've gone from 2005, 2011. Then I think uh, the Cambridge Handbook of Engineering Education Research that uh, Aditya Jury did, which came out, I think, 2014, thereabouts, that sort of captures pretty much the state of the art uh, back then. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, an essential uh, work, I would say. After that, you know, I was talking earlier about how uh, engineering education needs to build on the data that we have on engineering practice, on what engineers really do, rather than, you know, what we thought they did. Mm. And uh, the classic book is James Trevelyan, The Making of an Expert Engineer. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it's, I think it's got it all, all that you need there. 
so it's quite a hefty book, but uh, w- would be a good one to be on the shelves of your library. But if you want to get a, a something for yourself, uh, he a year later brought out a shorter, cheaper book called Learning Engineering Practice that was particularly aimed at uh, engineering graduates uh, going going out into the the, the professional world. Mm. Uh, so it, that kind of sums up the, the state the state of things uh, with regards to what we know about engineering practice. And finally, a book that came out this year, which uh, is follows on from Aditya Jory and Barbara Ohl's uh, Cambridge Handbook. And this is the new International Handbook of Engineering Education Research, which is a very substantial uh, piece of work. And it has uh, contributions from all over the globe. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the great benefit of it, you know, uh, these, these other ones, uh, many of these important books you're talking about, if you buy it new, something like a hundred pounds there, that's the pretty expensive. Uh, whereas the, uh, the new, uh, international handbook can actually it, it, he managed to make it available via open access so mm-hmm. everybody has access to it so right. uh, in terms of resources that that's what I'd suggest and I guess my final suggestion actually is uh, just from my own experience uh, when you know I was, I was saying when I discovered that there was this whole new level that I, I was completely unaware of uh, back, back, you know, about 15 years ago, uh, I also became aware that there was a lot of stuff being published every year. You know, I mean, EJE has maybe between 50 and 60 papers a year. JEE has perhaps 30. Uh, IEEE Transactions has maybe, uh, maybe 40 or 50. And the International Journal of Engineering Education, you know, published hundreds every year. So, you know, how do you get a grip on all of that stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what what's worked for me is, my motto is, find somebody whose work speaks to you. You know, I just found some some authors and I thought, wow, yeah, brilliant. You know, that's, that's really interesting. I want to, you know, anything else that they publish, I, you know, I want to know about it. Yeah. So uh, that's when I would say, find... Uh, uh, scholars whose work speaks to you and then speak to them. So send them an email, find out if they're talking at a conference and just go up and, and talk to them. Even if you embarrass yourself or, you know, you see, <laughs> so the, this person that you think is a brilliant researcher and they're talking to some very important people at this conference, just do what I do, you know, hang around and try and, you know, butt into the thing or catch, get them at the coffee break or buttonhole them in the corridor or whatever. And in almost all cases, you know, the, 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 what I've found is that the most brilliant and interesting researchers are also the most open and welcoming people to share, even with novices. You know, I mean, I, I said in the beginning, I really knew nothing. Uh, and uh, when I look back uh, at, you know, some of my earlier ideas and, you know, the thing is, uh, yeah, identify them. If their work speaks to you, try and speak to them. I think that would be my, my final uh, recommendation. Bill, thank you so much for um, coming on to the podcast today and giving us a really in-depth perspective on engineering education research and lots of reading to do. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Neil, and thank you, Nat. Uh, it's been fascinating for me. It's been my, my first podcast and, uh, yeah, given me a lot of ideas. Thank you. So, Natalie, I remember when we recorded uh, this episode, you know, I said I published lots in conference areas, but I didn't really get engineering education research. And listen to Bill in this episode, you know, it's much clearer to me. You know, he takes us on through this landscape, you know, with a map, Mm-hmm. And um, he sort of described ER through time and space, really, um, and gave us some real clear signposting and reading to do. Mm-hmm. The handbook for engineering education research is only sort of about 10 years old. Um, but I, th- I think it's sometimes easy to ignore things that are, you know, the last decade, because um, people think, oh, it's research. 
it's out of date. But, you know, mm. there's some real key texts there that he's given us to look at. And, um, you know, there was also this idea of these four areas of the landscape. And, and then I look, went back and looked at my publications and realised I've been hopping around this landscape and not <laughs> realising it. And um, at various levels of rigour as well, which are also defined in these references he's given us. So, you know, he's given me a lot more confidence for future endeavours. You know, I'm more enlightened. Um, and I think anyone who's listening to this, an engineering educator who maybe wants to do more research, um, get a real benefit from Bill's insights. How about you? Yeah, so I guess um, I agree with you quite a lot. I mean, there's a few things that really stuck out for me that I were like reflect on. So yeah. I guess the first is that I've, I found it like really useful to think about how the engineering education research landscapes changed through history and like you said also geographically I think it's really good that we Mm. have that understanding because it really does help us understand different people's perspectives and obviously grow and develop together Um, but also I think you're right in terms of the confidence I think Bill demonstrated that although there has been development and you know more conversations about quality and rigour over the past few decades that Mm. there is like you know, there's a place for whatever you are doing within engineering education research within that landscape and that there's not, you know, a right place to be within it and you might move um, between the areas. So yeah, I think really positive, um, reassuring messages. Okay, so that was our third episode in this special series celebrating 50 Years of Cephi, looking at some of the broader topics. Remember, you can access the show notes that go alongside this episode on the Cephi website. And also there's links to some of the resources that Bill mentioned. Also, you can subscribe to the Cephi podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you would like to be a guest in the future, please do get in contact with us. Thank you um, as ever for supporting us with this Cephi podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the episode.